Well, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, and that to chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Luke chapter 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 21. We are continuing in our exposition in the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we approach the exposition of Your holy Word, give us the grace to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Would our hearts be rendered unto Him. Help us to know more deeply the salvation He accomplished for us from Bethlehem to Calvary. Grant to us eyes that see and ears that hear the Savior speaking. And would we respond in faith the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When Luke came to the end of telling the story of the night of Jesus' birth, I wonder what prompted him to write those private inner thoughts that took place in the heart of Mary. It's very likely that Luke, while doing his research, personally asked Mary what her reaction was upon hearing the news of what the shepherds had told her, where they heard the divine announcement of the Christ being born in which they saw the heavenly chorus of angels giving highest praise to God. Mary, how did you respond? What did you think of all of this? And I can imagine her saying, I never forgot about it. I'm sure in multiple instances throughout Jesus' childhood, like the time she had lost Him, Mary stored those precious memories within her heart. Well, here was Mary now retelling the story some 15 to 20 years following the death, burial, and resurrection of her Savior. From the beginning of his Gospel account, Luke has told us that his sources, they were based on eyewitness testimony. And that he has set out to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished and to do so in an orderly way. But I want you to notice is that Luke here is not simply writing down for us a progression of events that happened in the past. Yes, he's giving us historical facts, without a doubt, like a good historian, but in giving us a historical chronology of Jesus, he is also teaching us a historical theology of Christ. He is instructing us, with each passing story, a lesson on who Christ is. He is developing our Christology here. You see, every story, every event, every narrative is providing for us a greater understanding of our Savior. We have learned of His humanity in His coming to us in the flesh. His divinity as He was called the Son of the Most High God. His humility in the manner in which He came. His royalty in that He came from the house and the lineage of David. His purity in being born of a virgin. 
even His supremacy as He was worshipped by angels. We are learning about Christ and coming to see Him as He is. And church, let me just say this. This is how we grow. The more we come to know Him, the more we will grow. Peter tells Christian believers in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, to grow. And how does that growth happen? And he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is to say, if we are to grow, we need to know more of Him. And to know more of Him that we might entrust ourselves to Him. This is what Luke originally intended in writing the Gospel, this good news to his friend named Theophilus. To give him the certainty, the assurance of knowing Christ. Well, if you look down in Luke chapter 2, Luke brings us back to the story, to the time, the place surrounding his birth. And one thing that I wanted to mention and to answer a question that I received from several of you is the whereabouts of the wise men. How come Luke doesn't mention, how come he doesn't mention the wise men at Jesus' birth? Well, if you've ever attended a Christmas play, the usual cast of characters will be Joseph and Mary, an angel, some sheep, a few shepherds, and three wise men. They always come in a group of three. But that is an inaccurate rendering of what really took place. If you ever find yourself watching a children's Christmas play with this unbiblical error, you have my permission to get up on that stage and to stop the play and inform all the children, including the sweet lady who's probably the director, that they are all wrong. Please, don't do that. But the wise men came to visit Jesus probably when He was about one to two years of age as they were led by the star that went before them. You'll remember that it was Herod who gave the edict to slaughter all the little boys in Bethlehem two years of age and under. And it says in Matthew chapter 2 there in verse 16, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so the wise men, they showed up to the party a little bit late. But following their visit, Joseph took the family and fled to Egypt until Herod died and then to make their way back home to Nazareth where Jesus would remain throughout his youth and until he entered into his public ministry. But following the birth of Jesus, there were a few things that Mary and Joseph they had to do with themselves and with their baby. They had to follow Jewish protocol. And for this sermon, we're going to take a look at each of these requirements. And the first was circumcision. Jesus, notice, was circumcised at the end of eight days. The second was purification. Having given birth, Mary, according to the law, she was ceremonially unclean. And so the law made a, a provision for her to take care of that. And the third was presentation. Luke chapter 2, verse 22 tells us that they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And so they had to do those three things. Circumcision, purification, and presentation. Now before we get into the details of these different requirements here, notice where Joseph and Mary's priorities were. Whenever there's a newborn baby, parents, we usually have to make a lot of decisions, right? Even before its arrival, 
We make arrangements for where the baby will sleep or what the baby will wear or what new technological advances we will use to help care for the baby, right? I know I just found out about a baby crib that's called a pod. Not a crib, but it's called a pod. And it knows when the baby is stirring and crying. This crib. And it makes shushing noises. And the crib swings back and forth to put the baby back to sleep. And then it measures how well the baby slept and it gives you messages on your phone. That's not a crib. That's a robot taking care of your baby. This is what parents do. They do everything to care for their baby in order for them to physically thrive and to grow. Now for Joseph and Mary, yes, they did all of that. But they prioritized what was most important, the spiritual. They made sure to keep first things first. To do all that God had required of them. If you look down in the passage in which we just read, you'll see how many times Luke tells us that what they did was according to the law. Verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, at the end, to do for Him according to the custom of the law. What are these parents doing? They are doing what is best for their child. By faith, obeying God and His commands. When the Son of God entered into the world, He did so by not only coming into a humble home, but into a godly home with godly parents. With godly parents that prioritized the spiritual need of their child as first and foremost. And to all the parents here in our church, that tells us what should be of highest concern for our children. And I understand as parents, we can at times lose sight of the fact that what our children need more than a few more minutes of a nap or the keeping of a strict routine or better grades or more extracurricular activities. What they need is Jesus Christ. They need Christ. This is who they need. We like to think that they need us most. But you see, we as parents, we make terrible saviors because we often deny them what they truly and desperately need. They need Christ. And you see, one day it's not only that we will have to give an account, but our children will have to give an account before their God and Creator. And what a tragedy if we have led them to believe, to trust in their own merits, their own success, or even ours, and not of Christ. Well, this is the very reason why Joseph and Mary, after waiting for eight days, took the blade to cut the foreskin of their baby. This is the first thing that Jesus' parents did. In all likelihood, it was Joseph who circumcised his son. Now, what was happening here? It was a procedure that went all the way back to the days of Abraham. When God made a covenant with him to bless him and his descendants and all the families of the earth. It was the promise of redemption. And that covenant was given a sign. A sign that would go on the flesh of all the baby boys of Israel. It was, in a sense, a divine tattoo. There was a permanency about it that would serve as a constant reminder of the 
covenantal promises of God. But why, why circumcision? It's because that physical sign pointed to a few spiritual realities. First, the where. Where was the sign applied? Well, the sign was applied on the male reproductive organ. The place from which the corruption of the human nature was passed. And that from generation to generation. From the time of Adam in the garden, there was no stop to the sin that flowed from one descendant to another. Sin was hereditary. Nowhere in Scripture is this more clearly seen than in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Two chapters following the fall. For an entire chapter we're told that person A lived this many years and fathered person B. And after living a certain number of years, he died. But now person B lived for a number of years and fathered person C. And after living a certain number of years, he too died. That's the pattern. The corruption of sin moved down into every branch of the family tree from the Garden of Eden. And so it was fitting that God would place the sign of the promise of His blessing, the promise of redemption, on the place where sin was passed from one person to the next. Second, the when. When was the sign applied? The sign was applied, notice, verse 21, on the eighth day. And that has great biblical significance. You know, Pastor Dave just talked about it in the children's sermon. In a seven-day week structure, the eighth day is really one and the same as the first. The eighth day cycles back to the first. And so as the first day represented creation, the eighth day represented a new creation. This was signified, for example, in the Feast of Tabernacles, where God prescribed both the first and an eighth-day Sabbath for the people. Jesus Himself followed this pattern as He rose from the grave. And the Gospel of John specifically tells us that on the first day of the week, He appeared to His disciples. But remember, you'll remember that when Jesus first appeared to His disciples in the upper room, there was a certain disciple who was not there. Thomas wasn't there. Overcome with grief and pain, he was nowhere to be found. And so when did He encounter the risen Lord? When Jesus returned back to His disciples in that upper room, in His second appearance to them. How many days after? John chapter 20, verse 26 says, eight days later. Jesus, from the beginning of His resurrection, communed with His disciples, it appears, every eight days to signify newness, resurrection, a pattern that dictates how we worship till this day. Every Lord's Day is a resurrection Sunday where we worship the risen Lord. But in the law of God, a child was circumcised on the eighth day. It was the promise that God would provide something new, a new beginning, a new creation, a new life. And the when was really connected to the how. The manner in which the sign was applied. By the cutting away of the flesh. The new was brought about by the tearing away of the foreskin. Here was God's promise to save. By cutting away of the old life. By doing away with the corruption. By severing that which was infected with 
sin. And so there on every male child was the sign of God's promise. His promise of redemption. And so here then was Joseph with the blade in his hand, putting that very sign upon his newborn son. But this circumcision was unlike all the other circumcisions performed in all of Israel. The sign was placed not on a baby in which there was a reminder to save, but on a baby who is the very Savior Himself, who in Himself would bring to fulfillment God's very covenantal promise to save. You see, in this eight-day-old child was the answer. Not a pointer to the promise, but the very promise itself in which life and blessing would come. But Joseph on that eighth day, he didn't just circumcise his son. But it's there that these two parents gave him his name. Notice how Luke records it in chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What is the name Joseph and Mary give their child? Not John, not Peter, not Samuel, but Jesus. How appropriate, following his circumcision, to name him Jesus. For there is no, un, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. It is no accident that they gave His name after putting the sign of God's promise upon Him. And as Joseph circumcised his son, it was a bloody procedure. And you see, this this first shedding of blood by the hands of his earthly father would anticipate the last shedding of blood by his Father in heaven. A final circumcision in which Jesus took upon our corruption A finishing circumcision in which He took upon our sinful flesh. And by taking upon Himself the bloody blade, the bloody blade of God, He he Himself was cut off. Well, if you've been sitting in our adult Sunday school with Pastor Eric, you know there's another covenant. Not the Abrahamic covenant, but there's also another covenant that we call the Mosaic covenant. The covenant God made with the people of Israel through Moses in which God gave the promise of blessing and cursing. Blessing for obedience. Cursing for disobedience. And you see, the only way in which blessing could come was for another to take the curse. Well, what was the curse? It was in essence to be cut off from God. To be removed from His divine favor and presence. And here's the thing, in the sign of circumcision was also the promise of a curse. It it was that bloody blade. It, It was a sign for both a blessing and a curse. A blessing by cutting off the corruption, but a curse by being cut off from God. In the sign was the reminder that every Israelite, because of their sinful corruption, deserved to be cut off. In judgment, removed from God. And you see, you fast forward to Calvary and this is what took place on the cross. The circumcision Christ received on the cross was not just to give us something new, 
But in order to give us something new, He had to take upon Himself the corruption of our old and receive in Himself the very curse of it. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But Paul goes on in Galatians to verse 14. Listen to this. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. How did we receive the blessing? When Jesus became a curse on our behalf. You see, Joseph and Mary, they didn't just perform a surgical procedure upon their baby for the benefit of his health but to bring eternal healing for corrupted sinners. The bloody sign He received revealed what work He had come to do. That as He shed His blood at His birth, so He would shed His blood in His death. Now Luke not only tells us that circumcision was just one of the things this family had to do, look with me in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. Well, after having circumcised the eight-day-old child in Bethlehem, they made their way up to Jerusalem. And it's because the law stated that Mary, having given birth, she was now unclean. And I think it will serve us well for us to look at what God told Moses. So leave your finger here in Luke chapter 2. And can you turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 12? Leviticus chapter 12 will help us to see the Old Testament passage here. Leviticus chapter 12. There's a lot of Old Testament studying here for us to understand. Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. We just saw them do that. Verse 4. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. And so there was a process for every time a woman gave birth in Israel. It was a time of waiting. And that for 40 days. And when the time of waiting was over, she was required to go to the entrance of the house of God and 
Bring to the priest a lamb for a burnt offering and a, a pigeon for a sin offering. Well, notice if you turn back to Luke chapter 2, notice that in the case of Mary, what sacrifices did she offer? If we go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 24, she brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Which tells us something that we already know about her and Joseph. They were poor. They didn't have much. And the reason why they didn't bring a lamb was because they couldn't afford one. Here was another instance of the humility of our Savior coming to us not in riches, but in poverty. And you see, it wasn't for the sake of some kind of modesty, but rather for the sake of saving sinners. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. It wasn't for the sake of modesty, or even for the sake of humility. Humility was the path that He chose for our sake. Well then, why why did the mother have to go through this process? It's because as stated, she needed to be purified. And purified because it was presumed that a woman in giving birth had passed from the womb and into the world another guilty sinner. What made the woman impure in birth was the corruption of her child's sin in which it had inherited from Adam. And so can you imagine in what is often the most emotional moment, the most joyful moment, the midwife or doctor handing the newborn baby to the mother to to hold him, telling her, you're now unclean. It was a glaring reminder of the pervasiveness of sin. And this is why sacrifices were made. And notice the kind of sacrifice. A sin offering. Sacrifices which symbolize that the one making the sacrifice, in this case the woman, deserved death. And so upon the altar went an animal loaded with guilt and sin to pay the penalty on behalf of the one offering the sacrifice. But here is the real question. Why of all people did Mary need to go through the process of purification? If there was a woman who did not need to fulfill this requirement of purification, wasn't it Mary? It's because she gave birth not to a guilty sinner but to a child who was perfect and holy and guilt-free. He was the sinless Son of God. He was completely without sin, either original or actual. He was conceived not by a paternal sinner, but by the Holy Spirit. So why did Mary have to be purified? Well, on one end of the answer is because God had commanded it. And for Mary, she was simply doing what she as a faithful Israelite had to do. But the deeper answer is this. For the Son of God, even in His infancy, was in every respect submitting Himself through every obligation of the law. He was doing all that was required, not for Himself, but for sinners. 
He was fulfilling all righteousness for me and for you. You see, this entire process, circumcision, purification, and presentation were all things in which God's law had demanded. It was the requirement and the prerequisite for the people of Israel. But remember the promise? If you obey, God would give the blessing. But if you disobey, God would bring down the cursing. What do we see Jesus doing? Actively obtaining the blessing. We see Jesus fulfilling the law, satisfying the requirement, obeying God's command, thus earning the blessing of God. But for who? He didn't need it for Himself. He didn't need the blessing of God. He is God. He is very God of very God. So for who? For sinners. Specifically for those He came to save for you and for me. Listen to this verse that I've been quoting and giving for the last few weeks. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Now hear this. Born under the law. Well, why was He born under the law? Why did He come subjecting Himself to the law? In order to redeem those who are under the law. And this is why Mary had to be purified and Jesus circumcised, even though He had absolutely no need for it. He was, as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 tells us, made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. You see, we, we are, we are, every single one of us, without exception, we are lawbreakers. And the reality is this, it's not that we need someone to come and just pay the ransom for our sins. That would leave us absolved from the judgment of God. We would be cleared from the cursing of God. But what we need is not only to be cleared of the cursing of God, but be given His blessing. We need to earn His favor. We need a reason not only to be set free from judgment, but a reason to live in eternal fellowship with Him. You see, it's one thing to be forgiven of our unrighteousness and another thing to have the righteousness which God requires to live with Him. A righteousness that brings me into into His holy presence. A righteousness that earns me heaven. A righteousness that gets me the blessing. And you see, Jesus is doing that right here. He is earning the righteousness that I need. He is receiving the blessing for which without I can never be in favor with God. He was fulfilling all the obligations of the law which I could never keep. Do you know what that means for you, Christian? You know what that means? It means you coming to church every Sunday is not what makes you a Christian. Being a member of a Reformed Baptist church does not make you a Christian. Listening to sermons and even feeling convicted in your heart doesn't make you a Christian. Reading the Bible and praying and serving others in the church doesn't make you a Christian. Let's not get this wrong. Jesus Christ and Him alone, He makes you a Christian. 
Your, your standing before the Almighty can never be attributed because of what you do in your own righteousness. We are saved and are being saved and will be saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And for many of us, that's something we know. We know that in here. We know that. But yet we go about our lives contrary to the fact. And here's how it manifests itself. Pastor Danny, do you, want, do you want to know how hard I serve? You want to know how hard I serve? I do more than the majority of the people here in this church. We think we can earn it. Or, Pastor Danny, you don't have to worry about me. God knows how much I sacrifice. He knows the amount of money that I give to the church. We think we can buy it. We think we can buy it. It's made manifest in our pride when we think ourselves more worthy of other Christian believers as if our righteousness exceeds theirs. That's Pharisee talk. That's Pharisee talk. That's the prayer of the Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. But where is true righteousness found? Only in Christ, which can only be received by faith. Which is why the beggar saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He got that righteousness. This is a righteousness that doesn't come from within ourselves, but a righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves. And here, Jesus is doing that for us. He is submitting Himself to the obligations of that which was required of us. He is fulfilling it and never failing at any point. If you're not a Christian here, you can never work your way into earning the blessing of God. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot work for it. You can do everything to look the part. Yet Christ will have no part with you. Christ must give it to you. And you must receive it by faith. And that because we ourselves, we are not law abiders, but we are law breakers. And it was Jesus Christ who took upon Himself the curse of the law for sinners and earned in His life, death, and resurrection the blessing we could never obtain. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake God made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in Christ is the salvation of God, which is why you must and trust yourself to Him. There's no hymn that says it better than this. Not, not the labors of my hands can fulfill Thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and Thou alone. Christ must save and Christ alone. And so see your wretchedness See your condemnation and look to Him in trusting faith. Now lastly, as Mary offered the sacrifices for her purification, it was then followed by Jesus' presentation. Look with me in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young 
pigeons. Well, after a woman was purified, if she gave birth to her firstborn son, and that son was then presented to the Lord. And this goes back to the Exodus. But why? You'll remember that in the story of the Exodus, the tenth and final plague that God brought down in the land of Egypt was the death of every firstborn son. And it says in Exodus that there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Well, what were God's instructions for the people of Israel? You remember this story. To take the blood of the lamb, to put it on the lintel of the door and its two doorposts. Well, why? It's because the Israelites, just like the Egyptians, they deserved death. They were not exempt from the judgment of God, but because of the blood of the Lamb, God passed over them, sparing their firstborn. Well, God made an an agreement with Israel that every firstborn from the tribe of Levi be dedicated to serve in the temple. Now, what about those firstborns from the rest of the tribes? A ransom price had to be paid. Along with the sacrifices offered for purification, a price, a ransom price had to be paid of five shekels. It was a redemption fee. And you can find it in Numbers chapter 3. And so Jesus, coming from the tribe of Judah, had to be, and hear this, ransomed. That the Savior before He could save anyone. Had to be redeemed. Now that sounds kind of odd. What was He doing? What was the eternal Son of God who needed no redeeming, what was He doing? You see, He was identifying Himself with you and with me. That's why He was being presented before the Lord. So that in obtaining the blessing, He could stand in our place. Notice here the irony of Joseph and Mary presenting their firstborn son, their only son, to God. But the real picture is this. The real picture of what was really taking place was God was giving His Son to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Notice that here was Jesus. And we'll close with this. At just a little over a month old, Jesus at at 40 days old, yet doing infinitely more than what all the people who have ever lived combined could, could never do in all their lifetime. That He was doing at a month and ten days. Here in the Gospel of Luke, just two chapters in, Luke gives to us an inexhaustible theology of our Savior. A Christology that all the books in the world can't compare. 
And so church, let us worship Him. Let us come to Him in faith. And let us prize and adore Him. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank You for sending down to us Your grace in Jesus Christ. For coming to stand in our place and to accomplish all Your will. To fulfill all righteousness. To receive our curse. And to bestow Your blessing. We have a Savior in whom we have received every spiritual blessing from heaven. And we are eternally grateful. Yet forgive us for our moments of ungratefulness. For turning our eyes away from Christ. For neglecting so great a salvation. We ask that You would fix our hearts back upon Christ. And would we look to Him and continue trusting faith. In the name of our Redeemer and Savior we pray. Amen.